0: You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 133, an ethics overview.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential.
0: Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, uh, we are back today with a a dear friend of the Global Center for Women and Justice. And uh, one of the great privileges that we get in being able to uh, do this work is to uh, get connected with wonderful people around the world. Who have a similar passion and also a wonderful expertise in so many areas. And today's uh, guest and friend of ours is uh, probably one of the first people I think of in this effort.
1: Absolutely. And I'm really honored to introduce Deputy Chief Derek Marsh, retired from Westminster Police Department in California, 26 years of service. And I met him in 2004 when he helped start the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force, where he served as the co chair of the task force until 2012. And I've always been impressed with his prolific ability to teach, to develop courses, and to provide oversight to human trafficking investigations. And being a very creative and articulate and informed um, frontline service provider, he provided congressional testimony twice as an expert witness. He's traveled uh, not only in California, but nationally and globally, and has been adjunct professor here at Vanguard University since we launched a course in 2009, and I am just so impressed with his expertise. Currently, he serves as the Bureau of Justice Assistance Visiting Fellow in Human Trafficking and is researching task forces to identify, investigate, and prosecute labor trafficking cases throughout the U.S. And his, his line of credits goes on and on, and we need to get to the podcast, so I'm going to stop. Our current project is developing an online course in ethics of, um, and human trafficking, and this course is going to be part of our online certificate of 12 units, and we already are maxed when this course starts in January, and we thought we would uh, share some of the issues that we face in addressing human trafficking. So this is part one of a three-part approach to the dilemmas that we face ethically in fighting, combating, rescuing um, and restoring victims of human trafficking. So welcome, um, Chief. We're really happy to have you here.
2: Sandy and Dave, thanks for having me. Um, That's quite a litany of praise you've thrown on me, so I'm hoping I can rise to the occasion and uh, justify all of it. Uh, I'm excited to be here, obviously, today to talk specifically about uh, ethics and law enforcement and ethics and specifically human trafficking. Uh, you approached me, I know, about, Sandy, about putting together a course, a curriculum that dealt with this for your online certification program. I'm very excited to be a part of it. And I have struggled over this for the past couple of weeks to try to put something together that I'm hoping is not just eth- um, an ethics philosophy course, which I really didn't want to get into. I don't consider myself an expert in that but by any means, but more of an applied ethics type of approach on how to address issues that come up when you're addressing human trafficking, whether it's through the law enforcement perspective, through the victim service provider perspective, healthcare, education, um, you name it. There's, a, there's different people approaching these issues from different directions, but when you get together in a collaboration, those decisions become a little bit more problematic. And while not everything is an ethical dilemma per se, It's really easy to make a decision, in a sense, to say, well, this person violated the law. It's easy to arrest them, in a sense. Uh, Things do become more complicated the more you get involved and try to adopt that victim-centered, trauma-formed approach.
1: When I served with you as the um, administrator of the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force, I learned a great deal about perspective and the... um, kind of uh, based on sort of a standpoint theory, I'm over here as a faith-based leader, and then I was responsible for um, uh, seeing things from a victim service provider perspective, and I had no experience with looking at things from the law enforcement perspective, and one of the issues that I faced continuously for the whole three years that I served was the dilemma of the the legal implications when working with volunteers and service providers that are have a pretty narrow perspective. and I realized very quickly that I um, defaulted to my own personal values and beliefs. And so I, I kind of want to start this interview with the I, something I remember way back in, in my education is the belief-value syllogism. And the example is the belief, grass is green. The value, green is good. And the attitude, grass is good. And work backwards with you if you can kind of explain how that belief and value Um, principles help us in framing our response to any kind of ethical dilemma?
2: Well, I appreciate the question. And I think that's really a great place to start because not only as organizations or agencies do we have a mission, vision, values that we're trying to achieve, but also as individuals, we walk in with our own set of agendas, our own set of values and beliefs. And I think if we start from the individual part and then work our way the opposite direction, might have a better chance of understanding a little bit more about what's going on. When it comes to values, I think probably the best way to look at it is it comes from the Latin valere, which basically comes from a way we describe a person's values or standards of behavior. But values can also be just a, a positive or a negative judgment, if you will, on some observation or perception as we go. You mentioned the belief value syllogism, I learned that that, that in college, it, was, it kind of blew my mind in college, a lot of things blew my mind in college, but that for sure, <laughs> you know. Because uh, the idea being that we were looking at the belief plus the value would equal an attitude, and that attitude is what predisposes you to act or predisposes you to think in a certain way. So the idea that green is good would never really cross my mind, but then if you put it together with grass, green all of a sudden grass becomes good too. And that whole idea of transference really plays itself out. Um, and we find that you know most of ourselves, whether you're working with values or what we call some in some senses morals, is more like a system of values that people have. Uh, we find that there are a lot of different value systems that are existent, and I'd be you know we, we could spend the rest of the podcast you wanted to put together talking about different value systems or different groups of values, but you know there's obviously from Galatians 5:22-23, they call the fruit of the spirit, which is a set of values that the Bible puts out for us including love, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, which is something that's been going on obviously now since the Bible was written You know, a couple thousand years ago. The seven Christian virtues are from two sets of virtues. And for our four cardinal virtues, we're looking at prudence, justice, restraint, and temperance. Uh, And then we're looking from a theological perspective. And uh, we come up against faith, hope, and love. And actually those first four cardinal virtues come from Aristotle. And they mm-hmm. kind of got adopted into the religious, you know, theologies. And then they added the, uh, and then they adopted the other three, and he came across away. But obviously there's a more practical. In law enforcement, I had the opportunity of being trained in the uh, character counts curriculum for California law enforcement. And they use Michael Josephson's character counts. And he in 2002, he put together what he calls six pillars of character, which are really six values or six principles that people could use regardless of, of where they are, not just in California, but works in the United States. It would work in the world where you're looking at putting together issues like trustworthiness, respect, responsibility, fairness, caring, citizenship, all of which contribute to who we are. Because once you start valuing things a certain way, you start acting a certain way. I think that's really the key when we're talking about values and beliefs. Because once you perceive it and you have a feeling about whether it's good or bad, you associate with it, uh, also, you have an attitude, and also interacting that way.
1: I I really appreciate this pillars of character model because it is um, it's a it's a model that is well known, particularly in law enforcement. It's used um, in a lot of places besides California. And one of the challenges that I faced as um, a community member entering the battle against human trafficking, was understanding how to communicate with um, law enforcement. And so much of our human trafficking um, three Ps of prevention, protection, and prosecution are so involved with meeting legal requirements. And so my, my moral virtues and my values and beliefs told me, I, I've got to do this. And then I found out I faced um, legal requirements, and so I needed to learn how to uh, respect and value what law enforcement said to me. And so I think this overview of ethics is an opportunity, particularly for our listeners, to begin to understand the um, reference point for ethical decision-making that law enforcement has, because there's such a big piece of what we do, whether we do this in California, nationally, or globally, anywhere.
2: Well, and I think once we engage with other organizations, just not just law enforcement, obviously victim service providers, faith-based organizations, education groups, healthcare groups, uh, we're really looking at kind of an ethic of how to approach these issues, because you know, obviously law enforcement is under a very stringent microscope these days on their behavior and their decisions that they make. And it's important for them to be able to articulate not just, you know, what happened at a scene, but what they were thinking and understand what's the appropriate kind of action on both an ethical and on a behavioral policy type of level, legal level. So, you know, it, it helps cross that divide, if you will. You know, our own personal moralities, if you will, are something we take up with us no matter where we go. But when you perform for an agency or when you represent an agency, then you almost have to think about their ethical codes, their values, their missions, and try to translate it into your behavior because that's where you start layering up, you know, the difficulties. If you're, if you're not exactly communicating well with each other, you need to understand where you're coming from individually before you can walk into an agency and understand where the agency is actually coming from and what their issues are, their directions, their values, their, their, their mission statement, their vision, and then be able to communicate that to other organizations and try to make everyone work together with all those, not necessarily conflicting, but definitely... Um, challenging you know value systems that a lot of people come into human trafficking with a specific goal whether it's to help victims or to put uh, suspects into jail or to provide service from a faith-based perspective or to provide health care and make sure people are sound and physi- physiologically well and psychologically well uh, or and also to help train them and help to prevent and go into that so all of these different purposes have a little bit different take on the values that they're using and the beliefs they use to go move forward. So you know when we're talking about like ethics, and I'm, I'm making a distinction here. Morality, I'm looking at, is more like a personal set of values, whereas ethics is more of a habit and custom we have of looking at things from a group setting and from working things from a large inter-, inter groups kind of perspective. So you know there are different levels of ethics. You know ethics again, you are look at Aristotle, Plato, and all this where it all started from. Uh, the Bible included. that, You know we're talking about meta like ethics normative ethics. You know, those are things that philosophers really deal with, how we come to them, what's going on. And really, I don't pretend to even have a, a glimmer of expertise. I, I'm copying what I'm reading, basically, and I don't want to pretend anything more than that. But from applied ethical perspective, which is really the third type of, you know, or a third category of ethics that people look at, I think that's really important because it's one thing to say, thing to say I'm ethical or I'm moral, but it's a whole other thing to act that way and to be that way consistently. So I think really it's that using those applied ethics and using our ethical standards in a way day-to-day, which we can use them and not have to become philosophical as things when things are happening right in front of us, that is really a more powerful way of communicating ethics and making it possible for other groups and other people to share that ethical system with you.
1: So um, ethos is, is we t- hear a lot about that when e- every organization talks about their um, their ethos and and really that's a that's a, a habit basically that sure. you have practiced and continue to practice and it it becomes that frame and you use the term um, a code of ethics. So how would one develop a formal code of
2: ethics? Well, that's a trick because we all again we have different ethical perspectives that we bring into and we have to look at you know what we're trying to achieve in the end. So. You're right, ethos, ethics, uh, basically a habit or custom, that again comes from the Greek. Um, there's a quote out there and I was trying to find a source for it, is, uh, and it's frequently attributed to Aristotle, though I went through the Nicomachean ethics just to see if I could find it and I couldn't, which is basically you are what you repeatedly do. And it's one of those, It's comes like a character type of thing where if you do it over and over again, um, that's who you become from a character or a personality or an ethical perspective. But if you think about it, that's how we are perceived by people as well. They can't get into our heads, I can't read your mind. I look at how you talk and how you behave and I kind of like draw up this perspective of you. And the same thing works not just on an individual level but from an organizational level. You know, I don't know how what the whole organization is when I look at like large corporations like Microsoft or a federal agency or whatever, but what I am looking at is their behavior. How have they acted in the world? What kind of policies and procedures do they have? Do they follow an ethical or you know, a code? Uh, do they follow a moral code? And so, when you're looking at ethical codes or ethical perspectives, you're looking at things that, you know, what's better for the greatest number of people? Or is it just based on the, you know, are their goals just to make a bunch of money? Is it to be a corporate citizen or to be have corporate citizenship as being a primary end? Do they, do they care about the ends justifying the means? Or do they think the means justify any ends they get? I mean, it's really hard to say. And again, you know, there's some people in the world that you know espouse, hey, if it if it feels good, feels good, do it. Kind of a hedonistic type of perspective, which is almost scary because you you know not everyone yeah, can feel good. at someone's right now. You got you got to be careful of that. And then there's also this you know, kind of golden rule, altruism kind of perspective. You, know, you Do unto others as you would have others do to you, which has been around for literally hundreds and thousands of years. So. Your ethical code that you're putting together is really that system of values that you have as an organization that you act upon and base your decisions on and help focus everyone towards. And really, the more you articulate it, the more you document it and get people to agree to it and have and buy-in from other groups, then the closer you are to having um, a synergy, if you will, towards making more ethical decisions. To making them more justifiable, not just in the legal system, but also to the community at large, to federal agencies, and to yourself as an individual.
1: So when I when I look at all these ideas of ethical perspectives, um, how do I choose the best
2: one? Well, in, in the best is a loaded word, <laughs> yeah. yeah <it's laughs> to, to say the least, you know, um, there's there's a the guy, there's a gentleman out there, uh, way smarter than me, a gentleman named Hunter Lewis, who wrote a book about uh, value modes and thinking and things like that. And he, he said basically, you cannot separate the way you arrive at values from the values itself. So if you think from an authority perspective or from taking someone else's word for things then your values are gonna reflect that kind of authoritative kind of mentality, if you think of things logically, kind of like that typical Spock mentality, you know, where everything's is very logical and goes then that's how you're going to come up with things uh, sense experience there are a lot of people who just if you don't see it you don't believe it things like that so if you're thinking in that mode then that's really how you're gonna you know make things work you know as far as I'm concerned um, the trick is this that we all have what I consider to be like an ethical capacity that's not a unique term ethicists have been using it for years it's the ability to really to understand more about what ethical issues are to be able to sharpen your skills and understand better ethical decision-making models. Uh, It uh, it requires you to broaden your worldview a little bit and take more perspectives in in our world as we're playing here in human trafficking to take other groups and other uh, federal agencies, state agencies, local, tribal, even international, if you go on that level, global agencies, and understand where they're coming from and what these agencies are doing and try to incorporate them and understand more about what affects more people the best you can, and finally, you need a little bit of more what we call moral imagination. That moral imagination creates a sensitivity to those dilemmas that you're going to run across from an ethical perspective. So, there is it's pretty cut and dry if you think about it. If you like you said you you see someone committing, you happen to be you know I don't know if it's fortunate or not, but unfortunate enough to run across someone who's committing a crime or an ethical vi- or a, um, a human trafficking violation. You say, well, should I arrest that person? Should I not arrest that person? I think that's pretty self evident. But then when you find that person, that's easy. But what about when you find the victim and that person has also committed a crime, but they're also clearly a victim of human trafficking and forced into it, then we begin to get to a more of a gray zone area. Do you arrest them? Do you detain them? Do you, you recommend them to go to victim service providers? Do you find them somewhere to stay and talk to them later? Do you, you know, interview them right at that time? All of these have to do with not just letter of the law or basic policies that you would go through because in law enforcement, it's really simple. You stick them in an the interview room and you try to get information out of them, but it becomes much more attenuated by concern for where the victim's coming from, what kind of trauma they experienced, the, our refusal to re-traumatize those people. And you understand that you know what we're doing from a human trafficking perspective is a victim-centered ethical approach where what the victim is suffering and what they're going through is really what we're considering first before we worry about the case or getting a particular statement that forwards our investigation.
1: I I just had this conversation in a class this week, and the discussion was about someone who had suffered um, through being victimized, but they were in the United States illegally. And so one student was um, advocating for mercy and for services and to... um, Help, help the victim. And the other student was, well, this wouldn't have happened if they hadn't come. And so then I interjected the, how did they get here? And after learning more of the story, of course, then we learn that there was fraud involved, um, that there was manipulation and coercion. And so now you go back to, it's not a black and white issue. So how do we apply a code of ethics in that kind of situation.
2: Well, what we do is we adopt a either one or, or different perspectives, ethical perspectives or ethical strategies to try to look to see how, if we make a certain decision a certain way, what are the outcomes and are we sat, are gonna be satisfied with those outcomes as a group as well as, as an agency? Because as an agency, I can tell you that I'm not satisfied with not losing a case because my victim needs time to recuperate and to be feel safe and secure And, you know, from an agency perspective, that may not be where I'm coming from. But from a human trafficking collaboration perspective, that's exactly what I need to understand and appreciate. Because then later I understand that from, again, from my agency perspective, I would get a better testimony, I would get a better support as as a witness, as a victim, I would be able to have a more uh, robust report, more details, better chance of prosecuting, if I give that person the chance to recuperate and not just try to push it out of them the first time and get a false statement, completely, then I have to justify that later.
1: So, in the um, in the course of our conversation, you mentioned Aristotle and the idea of character, and you um, you talked about how that is reflected in their their morality, and the quote that I like from Aristotle, I've had it on plaques, people have keychains with it, so it's pretty common, um, that defines a person with character, is someone who does the right thing at the right time in the right way. And in um, applying an ethics model to, uh, for decision-making to the battle for human trafficking, it takes more time if you go through that process.
2: Well, it's definitely something we don't wake up with. I mean, we obviously it's something we grow with over time. We develop. We have to learn. Again, we talk about that ethical capacity we mentioned earlier. I too love that quote uh, from Aristotle. I think that people have character, but I think organizations have a character to have a, have a presence, and it's not just. It doesn't come in a day. It doesn't come in a week. It comes over time, and it's again, it's the way we repeatedly act. It's a habit of making good choices, doing the right thing for the right people at the right time. And it's something that we all have to address as far as understanding how we get there and the proper ways of making those decisions that are both ethically sound, legally sound, and meet the needs of the victim as well as meeting the needs of the different agencies who are out there to accomplish their various missions. I think that's really the challenge and really I think our next podcast if I can forecast that. It would, I was thinking
1: about the same thing. We <laughs> I don't, I don't know if a lot of forecasting yeah. uh,
2: is really going to talk more about like different ethical decision-making models and how they can be used because um, the more we practice this, the better we get. And mm-hmm. that was one of the things I learned when I became a trainer in ethics through the character counts with law enforcement is that you don't learn it just by reading about it, you learn it by doing it. And the more you do it and work through scenarios and talk to people and get their opinions and get their values and their attitudes on how things should go and you mesh it together, the more chance you have to grow, not just an individual, but also to grow as a group and a collaboration. And I really think that's our goal with human trafficking is to get everyone, in a sense, on the same page, articulate where you wanna be, where you wanna go, and understand the basic steps you need to get there. And really, what is every day but a series of decisions that we make, whether it's we're gonna go so such and such for lunch But more importantly, how are we going to interact with each other? How are we going to interact with the people who are being victimized? How are we going to interact with our suspects? How are we going to interact with our survivors? Are we going to include them or not? All these questions become very pertinent and relevant as we go on and become more mature as a human trafficking collaboration.
1: I'm inspired and challenged by this um, conversation. I started thinking as I was listening to you, I haven't revised my personal code of ethics in, I'm trying to remember when it was, and I would challenge listeners, if you've never written your own code of ethics, it's a great exercise. And if you haven't looked at it in a long time, rewrite it. So um, Chief, I have, um, I'm committing to you, I'm going to rewrite my personal code of ethics. And um, I'm really excited about learning more about an EDM, an ethical decision-making model in our next podcast. For our listeners, the um, uh, books and quotes that um, Chief Marsh has mentioned, we'll post those in our show notes. And I can't
2: wait to part two. And I'm looking forward to it too. Thanks for having me this time.
0: Well, Derek and Sandy, thank you both for this great introduction. I'm really excited for the next two shows as well to uh, give it, get into even more of the details here. And as always, uh, we, of course, would love to hear your feedback. And if you are listening and have uh, thought of a question that you want to post us or maybe, uh, maybe you just want to... Uh, ask something in general about human trafficking, uh, the best way to get in touch with us is to go to gcwj at vanguard.edu. That email address will allow you to connect with us. You can also call us at 714-966-6360. And if you've been listening to the show for a bit, uh, we'd always appreciate a review or a rating on iTunes. If you use iTunes, uh, take a few minutes to search for Ending Human Trafficking on iTunes. Uh, leave us a rating or review that helps even more people to learn about our work and to support the efforts in Ending Human Trafficking. And we'll see you back for the next episode. Uh, more with Derek and Sandy. Take care.